Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Bernard Herrmann's score to the 1951 seminal flying saucer sci-fi as political allegory film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. That was a lot of hyphens. Thank you. The Day the Earth Stood Still was written by Edmund H. North, based on the story Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates. It was produced by Julian Blaustein at 20th Century Fox, and it was directed by Robert Wise. John, tell us a little bit about The Day the Earth Stood Still. Flying Saucer lands in Washington, D.C. Strange man from another world steps out, has a grand vision for how the nations of Earth should and shouldn't conduct themselves. But will they listen? The strange man from another world, Klaatu, is played by Michael Rennie. His giant robot Gort is played by a big costume. Inside the costume is a man named Locke Martin. The people he meets on Earth are principally a nice single mother and her son, played by Patricia Neal and Billy Gray, her suspicious boyfriend, played by Hugh Marlowe, and they also meet the smartest man in the world, Professor Barnhart, played by Sam Jaffe, and uh, a couple other people, but eh. <laughs> it's a B-movie. you never heard of these people. Yeah, well, you know, people have heard of Michael Rennie because of this movie. Because of this movie. And the song about the movie. That's right. From Rocky Horror. He's a lyric. Yeah. yeah. Is that lyric a reference to what happens to him in this movie? Because he looks perfectly healthy the whole time. Anyway, will Klaatu's message of peace be properly understood by the petty squabbling politicos of Earth before the panicked military rounds him up. I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. (laughs) Is his message even one of peace? (laughs) We'll figure it out later. All right. Yeah, yeah, good enough. Good enough, John. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to ask if it was good enough. I think it's good enough. All right. All right, true confessions uh-huh. at the beginning of the episode. All right. I was considering being vague about whether I'd seen this before because I felt ashamed that I hadn't seen this before because it seemed like an essential piece of movie-watching literacy that I didn't want to have to talk on this uh, podcast about my degree of illiteracy. But I've decided better to come clean because... I want to talk about a first impression of this movie that I had rather than pretending it was an old impression that I was summoning up. That's what Klaatu would want you to do. (laughs) Maybe. It's what Gort would demand I do. Yeah. I don't have a problem admitting that I hadn't seen this movie before watching it for this. Uh, I knew about it. I knew its clout. I knew the long shadow it cast. And I knew that it was Bernard Herrmann's first score that he wrote while living in Hollywood after he moved here from New York, where he got started with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. That's true. I also knew kind of what went on in it and what the things looked like. And I'd seen some, you know, isolated clips from it. And I kind of felt like, ah, I know enough about it. But uh, it turned out I didn't know as much about it as I thought. There were many aspects of it that did feel uh, new to me. I'll tell you that I was familiar with its score, but disembodied from the movie because it appears on this CD that I think we've talked about before, the fantasy film world of Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, definitely. And I went back and listened to that too, because we brought that up when we were talking about Danny Elfman's score to Batman and Danny Elfman in general. And boy, going back over that album... 
everything on there just uh, created Danny Elfman as we know him. Sure. Including this. Including this specifically. I read that this movie and its score were a specifically pointed influence on Elfman wanting to be a composer. But yes, that CD also includes the scores to fantasy films like Journey to the Center of the Earth and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And the tracks are all long, like they're all sweets. It's like here's 13 minutes in a row of music from each of these movies. So the way that I knew the music to The Day the Earth Stood Still was in this kind of long omnibus track that starts with the main title and then progresses into, well, into the music that you hear directly after the main title in the movie, Mm -hmm. which is called Radar. You know, I had heard this not thinking very hard necessarily about what visual it accompanied, but I was familiar with this music. When I got to watching this movie and hearing the radar cue, Holy Christmas, that thing's doing about 4,000. And hearing it over these black and white, you know, low-budget, 1951, early age of schlocky sci-fi movies style. I have a bogey at 200,000. The shots of guys on military ships and listening to radar, big maps and stuff, and they're tracking. Oh no, there's an unidentified flying object that is invading our airspace. I would never have guessed that this is what this music was for. I I always felt like this must be something academic somehow. Mm -hmm. Had this kind of studied and measured, like incremental process feel that I wouldn't have associated with like a big action movie threat coming. Action movie? Well. Well, yeah, it sounds like calculations. It sounds like computers. Calculations. I mean, you know, once you hear the title Radar, you can absolutely hear the idea of information pinging back and forth. He has two pianos going, and one goes up high and one goes up low, and they say, oh, doop, 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 doop. You can hear the blips, you know, bouncing off of things and getting registered. Yeah, well, I've got a theory about what that music is that's different from that, but I want to hear more about what you imagined this music to be before you had a movie to attach it to. Because I think that this score, our way on this podcast, is to really focus on how it works in the movie, and that's what I want to do. But I think that this score has been important and influential and beloved as music that kind of stands away from the movie and just creates images in your mind. Tell me more about what you imagined, like what it meant to you when you had no movie. Well, the whole track, I mean... It was very, uh, this is kind of circular, but it sounds so Bernard Herrmann, and it sounds that way because it was instrumental in creating what I thought was the characteristics of Bernard Herrmann, but this is so Bernard Herrmann. It's got, it's got a big sort of two tense pregnant chords going back and forth. We're going to explore every bit of meaning that we can get by juxtaposing these two chords. And then meanwhile, there's this repeated figuration twirling and twirling in a kind of mechanized pattern. And they're incredibly repetitive and obsessive about small cells of material. I mean, this is, this is the stuff. Yeah. Did it sound like aliens? Did it sound like outer space to you? Or did it mm. just... No, it didn't sound like outer space to me. If I was picturing anything, I was picturing the fantastic creatures from the other movies that were on the album. I kind of conflated it with, like, 
you know, the monster iguana cues from the other scores that are on there. See, I knew this music, yes, I think from having listened to the suite and hearing it referenced, hearing it sort of called up. And I did have the association with the 50s sci-fi sound. Yeah. There are theremins that we'll talk about. There are... Theremins. There's wide-eyed, awe-inspiring unearthliness that I, I knew to associate with the era and the genre, but in a very general way. I didn't know quite how it attached to this specific movie and its specific tone and content. All right, so then when you watched the movie, the radar cue surprised you. Did the rest of it surprise you, or did any of it seem like, yeah, this is about right? I'd say that the main title seemed about right, and then, yes, the radar cue surprised me, and the rest of the movie did surprise me a little as well. I'll say, when I turned it on, when I put on the movie and the main title started, I just felt a thrill of, yes, this is so right. (laughs) The very first thing that happens is... Two theremins come diving down from the stratosphere, either like a bomb dropping or like a message coming from, you know, deepest space or just the most unearthly sound they can come up with. Actually, do you have a read on what that first noise is, what the prologue cue is? Yeah, I think it's that. It's just here we go. Just now let's listen to the theremins, what the theremins have to say. Just get ready for the weirdest thing. Get ready to have your mind stretched and blown and confused because something you don't understand is happening now. There's a painting of, you know, the wonders of space. It's a series of images that constitute kind of a journey from intergalactic space toward Earth, but they're just still images that are montaged together. There's fades, there's a slight zoom effect, and there's this music, and I just felt so excited. This is wonderful. Of course this is a classic. Of course Bernard Herrmann was a genius. Just these paintings, he has found the awe in them. I knew that I was going to see a movie with clunky 1950s sets and clunky 1950s dialogue, and this seemed like the best possible framing for that, more than I could really imagine being infused into this kind of imagery. He's casting this spell over everything that you have to contemplate infinite space and the unimaginable horrors and mysteries of the universe. The pianos and organs and theremins singing weirdly and what's going on in the bass and just all of this activity and the trumpets just setting the stage for a movie about space and science fiction and things beyond your normal ken. This was about as good as you could do that, I think. Yeah, absolutely agree. And then, yeah, when it switched into the radar cue, I was still thrilled because as a musical juxtaposition with this expanding sense of, you know, sort of like zooming into a fractal with those two chords going over and over, it's just the same over and over, but you feel like you're falling forward into it endlessly. And then it switches over to the activity on Earth and its radar scopes and things. And now, like you said, the piano, the lower of the two pianos, is just kind of holding steady. And the upper one is sort of skittering from one harmony to another. Well, trying this, trying that. Oh, what's this? Like you said, different kinds of thoughts and calculations. Reflections. Reflections, yeah. Because that's how radar works. I see. Well, all right. Well, my reading on this music is that here's the cosmos in the main title. (laughs) Here's the overwhelming superhuman scale of reality of the universe and now here's humans Mm -hmm. 
and humans are like an ant farm. They're like these little, you know, beetles running right and left, you know, panicking. Oh, what's this information? I don't know. They're just little dots on your screen. And that it was by the musical contrast and by the contrast of activity, trying to make human activity seem small, which is the whole intent of the movie really is to impose a little humility if it can. And I thought that came across. I felt like it's so satisfying to have this bigness and this smallness kind of feel harmonically related because some of these chords carry over and some of the chordal moves carry over from the first cue to the second cue, but the timbre changes, the texture changes, and now what was broad has become small and spiky. <laughs> and I just thought this is fantastic. And it's adding these words I'm using, these textural words, it's adding so much texture to, yeah, not particularly fancy looking, you know, it's well shot, the photography is good, more or less, but it looks like a 1951 black and white movie with just people in rooms most of the time, and yet he's adding all of this textural variety to it. And I was totally thrilled by that, and it was as much as I could hope while listening to such music on an album by itself. And then from there, then the movie really starts to get going, and the score becomes a score to this movie, and that's when I had to, you know, have sort of a first impression of what this movie is all about. I think you said a lot there. A lot of things that I want to kind of come back to. Like, I really like the idea of zooming into a fractal. And I want to tie that into the idea that the humans are an ant farm. He has such a driven and motivated and principled idea of what he wants to convey that he doesn't seem beholden to the surface of the movie. I kept thinking during this sequence... How would this be treated if this was a modern movie? I mean, I guess I could go and watch the, the remake from, what was it, 2008 or something with... Uh, Klaatu Reeves. With Keanu Reeves as Klaatu, if I wanted to find out what a modern era movie would take on this. But I, I didn't, and I, I'm not going to. We both instinctively did not do that. Yeah. We didn't discuss whether we should do that. We just knew. But I bet, I still feel confident enough to go on the record as saying that I bet that the analogous sequence in that version, in that remake, is not scored with this incredibly principled statement he's making about what the cosmos sounds like, yes, versus what human activity sounds like. I bet that the modern movie is much more sympathetic to the humans. Can we launch a missile to intercept it? The military is attempting like, to do oh, just that. Oh, it's intense. It's several. stressful. Humans don't know what's going on. Humans think Chances that something might be coming to get them. But Well, by gosh, we better hear what that sounds like for humans to be scared and to have something dire and important coming at them. I bet it would sound like an action movie, like a thriller. How long do we have? Seventy-eight minutes. And this surprised me because this doesn't sound like a thriller. Holy mackerel. Call headquarters. Get the lieutenant. This sounds like, let's process the information. Here is information coming, and it gets received. And then in order to find out more information, we send out some information, and some of the information gets bounced back to us. And that is what humans do. And this is what it sounds like. Bitsy, 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 bitsy. That was the disconnect that I was surprised by, but yes, I feel, you know, sort of cowed into taking it as gospel by the force of Bernard Herrmann's principles about 
what it is right to pay attention to and to give import to. For the big cosmos, for the big grand scape of what the world sounds like, he didn't want that to sound like a regular orchestra. He concocted this bizarre orchestra that has a lot of different keyboard instruments in it. There are two Hammond organs. There are two pianos. There are two harps. There are vibraphones. Then there's another kind of organ, more like a pipe organ kind of sound. Then there's different percussion. He has no strings in this, in the regular orchestral sense. He has just a few solo electric strings. An electric violin, an electric cello, and an electric bass. And not like a bass guitar, it's actually an electric upright double bass. And these were sort of early experimental, homegrown sorts of instruments, and they mostly just sort of wind up sounding like regular string instruments with pickups on them. But there is no string section, as you would normally have in almost any other score. You know, he wrote the he wrote the score to Psycho for only a string section. There's no overlap with this. You know, it was interesting while you mention it that we talked about how Psycho has been described as a black and white sound for a black and white movie because strings are a black and white sound. Uh-huh. Here's a completely non-overlapping orchestra. Oh, it also kind of sounds black and white. Yeah, it is interesting. It kind of works as a black and white sound. Did you feel that way? I, it definitely does sound like a black and white sound. There is also no wind section. There are no woodwinds, which are often described as conveying the color in an orchestra. There is a lot of brass, a lot of low brass, with various mutes on them from time to time. And then, yes, there are these two theremins. And this whole motley ensemble is all in there together for the main title. But then, for the radar cue, it drops down. So now there's only the two pianos going back and forth. On top of it, you have some vibraphones sort of touching on the chords, giving just a little bit of a pad sound. And yes, that electric bass playing pizzicato just to sort of accent the beats of the low piano. And the through line between the big ensemble, the big cosmic ensemble, and this small human ensemble is this sense for me of process. It is derived systematically. You can really perceive the cogs in this machine. There's a cog that goes The organs and the pianos and the harps are all together going And then you have the brass cog that's going and And then the theremin is sort of augmenting and overlapping with the long swelling notes with the brass. They each kind of have their own thing to do and they change slightly as they go on. It posits there is a cell of material and there is 
a process by which it can change. Like some sort of mathematical theorem that says, you know, if you prove that something works for n, and you prove that it works for n plus 1, therefore, the whole number line. He's giving you n, and then he's showing you a way that you can add 1 to n by moving it a little bit up and down, by changing the chord a little here, and he gives you n, and he gives you n plus 1, and then he says, therefore, everything. It's in this mathematical derivation of everything that it sort of feels like he's working with the concept of information on a different scale than, uh, than human thought. It's definitely engaging with this issue of what's human and what is beyond human, yeah. what's non-human. There's something about these twinkling stars, these sparkling pianos and Hammond organs, the grid of 16th notes running around, the harps, that really does evoke yeah, information or informational overload or a kind of something very much not human, something about the natural world as we find it. And is it a natural world, though? Is it the natural world or is it a supernatural world? Is that what you're saying? A, an other... Or is it a machine world or an alien world? I heard in it to some degree the beginning of a cliche that we know now of the marvels of nature, the wonder, this kind of you know, seeing the Matrix sense that there's infinite information in everything and, you know, a seashell is a spiral and a golden section and just all of this kind of sense that you look around and see the math whooshing back and forth as you look at the world as it is. Yeah. But yes, in this movie, it's ambiguous and that's kind of the scare that the movie is trying to put on you. You know, when you look into outer space, are you looking at emptiness or are you looking at a place where there are people who are um, looking down at you and shaking their heads that you're stupid you know the message of the movie ultimately is that there's people up there who are superior to us and we should be intimidated by them and there's a combination here of the kind of natural mathematics and yes maybe a machine world or a world where robots are in charge it doesn't have an answer to this I'm not saying uh, there's a way to interpret it but it brings up all of these associations in a really valuable way. I'll say, I don't think this movie would have the reputation that it has were it not for this music bringing to life all of the issues it tries to get at in a much more vivid artistic vision than the screenplay or the acting or any of the things that actually go on in the movie. I feel like this music is a sci-fi movie in itself and then it imparts that movie to The Day the Earth Stood Still. No doubt, absolutely agreed that it certainly wouldn't be as well remembered were not for this music and certainly agreed that the music is doing a sci-fi movie that is about these inscrutably complex but underlyingly ordered issues. I... <laughs> It just is doing it with such forceful self-determination that I feel like it doesn't always line up with the movie. It doesn't always seem to care whether it lines up with the movie. All right, where doesn't it line up with the movie? I mean, plenty. I think, <laughs> look, I feel like I have a very strange relationship with this because I definitely think it's fascinating and seminal and genius and important. But I also feel like it is so heavily principled that it is locking itself out from making certain moves that I feel like he's missing out on. I'm very open to hearing about that. This, you know, broad sense that I was describing of a process 
we hear a cell of material and we hear it worked over, worked around. There's you know maybe two or three of them going at the same time and this one goes and then that one goes. And this one goes and then that one goes. And then this one goes and then that one goes. And then this one goes and then that one goes. And then this one goes and then that one goes. It just is incessantly mechanistic for everything. <laughs> for everything all the time. When it's being loud and brash. When it's being quiet and sneaky nighttime suspense. The sort of the part of the music that is the most one of these things that's not like the others, which is the music that he writes for the kind of classroom tour of Washington, D.C., when the boy Billy and Klaatu visit the Lincoln Memorial. For that, he writes this kind of Americana trumpet music mm -hmm. that doesn't sound like space, that is supposed to sound like, you know, America, nobility rule of law, the greatness of Abraham Lincoln. And he does it with this kind of martial trumpet sound. But even that is a sequence and is a repetition of a few cells. It's in three and the trumpet goes ba 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 bum. Okay, then every other phrase of the trumpet is the same contour with the same rhythm. It's, you know, three short notes, one, two, three, and then a long note. And the chords move a little bit under it, and that's the whole cue. And it kind of derives out by, you know, taking this one small thing and subjecting it to movement and iteration, iteration, iteration. I really like these cues for Arlington Cemetery and Lincoln Memorial, and it's a great sound that he picks with the trumpet, which is accompanied with just a Hammond organ. And the sound of the bare trumpet over a Hammond organ it's somehow like uh, like an echo of itself. Oh, it's like something noble and military, but behind glass. It felt like he's sort of doing a pastiche of this without his full sincerity. I don't think it's a pastiche, but I mean, two comments about these cues, three comments. First comment, I agree with you. I really like these two little cues that are, like you said, the odd man out. The one thing is not like the other because the whole score refrains from being music about the humans yes. or their business or their feelings. And so this moment has been highlighted. It needs to be something that nothing in the rest of the score is. So I see the musical effect here with the organ and with some of these same kind of process techniques. I see it as a way to make music that is organically part of the score that surrounds it while still having a different subject and a different mm -hmm. tone. Like, it still needs to have some of these aspects of the rest of the music, but reveal through them that it's in a sort of a different thought space. I think that accounts for some of the things that you're noting. And the other comment I wanted to make is I just want to flag uh -huh. that you, you said, you know, these martial techniques and, oh, you know, like the military trumpet. Yeah. Uh, just flagging that when we start talking about what this movie is about, <laughs> that that is an interesting uh, yeah, fair enough. necessity that he finds himself in when he looks to what devices to use to indicate nobility. Yeah, fair enough. And then to that point, I guess it's germane that uh, this same material comes back at the very end 
as sort of the punctuation to Klaatu's final speech and ultimatum. Yeah, let's just set that up on a shelf as uh, the big question that we'll ask at the end of this episode, (laughs) because that to me is a real puzzle that uh, let's talk our way through the whole thing and then try and solve that puzzle. Okay, but outside of this, you know, how a bill gets made music, (laughs) everything is very self-similar, is very process-derived and iterative all of the time. It keeps going through its little formula and churning itself out, and it keeps doing it through action. You know, Billy follows Klaatu at night to the flying saucer, and he goes in the flying saucer, and then Billy is scared and he runs away. He kind of trips a little bit as he skitters and changes his course and flees. You're not going to hear that in the music. The idea of somebody like coming to a revelation and getting scared and then having to react to it. There's no room for that. The music's not paying attention to that because the music is like Gort the Robot just putting its head down and this is what happens next. Here it goes. The next thing happens. (laughs) Well, I mean, some of that is to do with this specific movie and the specific musical approach, but some of it is just Bernard Herrmann, as we've talked about before. Yeah. I see it as sort of the extension of the attitude you've expressed about how Mickey Mousing is demeaning to the action. Why would I catch when a kid falls down? The music certainly shouldn't go, because that would be... No, I don't want it to go down when he falls down, but I do expect to have the kid's emotion, which is at... A point of inflection here. He's startled and dismayed to see that <laughs> this perfectly nice stranger who showed up and took him on a field trip. Uh, <laughs> His mom said, uh, no one can watch Billy. And the man that she has met about 10 seconds earlier says, well, I'll watch him. Yeah. Oh, great. And it works out swell. Yeah. The <laughs> next night he says he's his best friend. But now he suddenly learns, whoa, maybe there's something different about my best friend that I need to be scared of. Like, that seems like an important beat in the movie. It is. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just describing, I think that Bernard Herrmann's attitude frequently was take what you said about Mickey Mousing and now just stand even further back yeah. and say, no, I'm not going to demean my music by having it be about whether that kid just got scared just then. Bigger things are afoot than that. Bigger things are afoot. That is ultimately what I'm driving at, is that Herman is always steering his feet to the bigger things. And he's just going to do them. And I feel like he does them even more pointedly in this score, even more formulaically and iteratively and incessantly than in the previous Bernard Herrmann scores that we've talked about, which, you know, do have fetching melodies and poignant emotional harmonic statements. This really doesn't. And it's striking. I think that there is a good reason for that choice in this movie that goes beyond just Bernard Herrmann's personality. Yeah, I agree that there is. And I want to hear you articulate it. But I also I just want to note that it is, it's doing something on a different wavelength than something else. But yeah, tell me about it. Well, this movie, I mean, let's talk about what this movie actually is. (laughs) It's a sci-fi movie about a man from space who comes down in a flying saucer that lands at the beginning of the movie. And, oh, it's about space. Then from then on, it mostly isn't about space. It is about basically an ambassador walking around and saying, I need to call everyone together so that I can tell you you need to be peaceful. And uh, he has a hard time doing that. I think I should get out among your people. 
and become familiar with the basis for these strange, unreasoning attitudes. And they keep reminding you that he's a man from outer space. But if this music weren't there, you'd forget. It's just a guy in a suit. Yeah. There's hardly any sci-fi action in this movie, you know, second for second. You know, there's some stuff that happens inside the flying saucer that's sci-fi-ish. And then you see people come out of the flying saucer. That's a very iconic image of the ramp extending out of the flying saucer. Boy, that spaceship is like all ramp. Did you notice that? Like... The whole hull of the ship is basically there so that there can be a ramp. The, the proportions seem off to me. But You're saying on the inside, what would you do with that part of the ship? You would just have to squeeze down to get in there? Yeah, the, like the saucer part seems to only be there so that a ramp can extend out of it, so that it can walk down from the like dome part that's on top of the saucer. John, that part is essential for interplanetary travel. <laughs> it works well enough to get me from planet to planet, John. So It's a lot of ramp. It could have been a ladder. <laughs> a ladder? That is so unmajestic. And being a majestic and intimidating voice from beyond is the whole point. Which is what I'm saying. This is a movie where the premise being that someone from outer space has this thing to say is essential. It's not really a science fiction movie in that the science is an essential part of the fiction. They talk about math and they mention it to kind of color a political allegory or something, kind of just a political scolding. What one hears on the commentary tracks and documentaries is that producer Julian Blaustein read some article about the quote-unquote peace offensive that the Soviets were undertaking, which was like a U.S. propaganda term to discredit Soviet calls for peace as just a kind of strategic manipulation of the rest of the world while they were developing nuclear weapons. And he was upset by the obvious oxymoron of peace offensive, and he thought that that represented the wrong direction for the world to be going, where peace was being treated as a thing just to scoff at and not a legitimate goal. At least that's how it sounded to him. And he wanted to make a movie about the dignity of peace and the importance of peace as a goal that transcended the petty cynicism that would, you know, lead the Americans to call the Soviets' diplomacy a peace offensive. The way the movie makes the case is a man from outer space says it. That's kind of the essence of the whole thing. Like, how can I get the world of today to see how petty and backward it is and how destructive all of these warmongering impulses are? I need a mouthpiece who will scare everyone into listening. What if it was a man from outer space? I am leaving soon. And you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day. And the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, can no longer be tolerated. My first impression surprise was, I thought that the day the Earth stood still, which I knew was a day on which the man from outer space somehow manages to neutralize electricity. We'll talk about that sequence, but he (laughs) makes the world stop having any power and everything stops and the Earth stands still and everyone is intimidated by this show of power. I thought it was going to be about how that made Earth rethink the arms race, rethink political lack of trust, etc., But no, that doesn't really have any effect on anyone. It just makes him mad. It just makes everybody go, okay, well, I guess now we got to kill him. Up till now, we've agreed upon the desirability of capturing this man alive. We can no longer afford to be so particular. Yeah, all of the generals at their table of uh, getting things wrong discuss how now we definitely (laughs) need to kill this man from outer space. And then they do. And then he is resurrected by the robot and then very quickly says... 
no, 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 no. This is not a full Christ allegory. Please, we would never do that in a movie. <laughs> Which was shoehorned in there by the Breen office. You know, the movie studio censoring protocol of the time was antsy about depicting a Christ-like resurrection, so they made the production insert this awkward line. He has the power of life and death? No. That power is reserved to the Almighty Spirit. This technique, in some cases, can restore life for a limited period. Don't worry, it's not the full Christ resurrection. Right. But they absolutely did mean it to be a Christ allegory. That's why he takes the name Carpenter. Yeah. And Blasting and the screenwriter North hated that line and hated having to put it there. So then this Christ-like figure issues his real message, which is, if you don't stop this nonsense, we're going to blow you up. Goodbye. Yeah. This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. That is the message of the movie. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace, or pursue your present course and face obliteration. I was shocked because that's so obviously completely within the mindset. I mean, that is (laughs) nuclear rhetoric. Yeah. The idea of... If we have a scary enough threat, then everyone will shut up. That, that's what was driving the arms race. And in fact, I thought, oh, did this movie dignifying that actually contribute in the wrong way to the mindset going forward? You know, the mutually assured destruction idea is as long as the outcome is too terrible to contemplate, then we can all relax and not have to worry about war anymore, which is exactly what Space Jesus says in this movie. And... <laughs> I found it shocking that that's where this movie was headed. I found it shocking, too. Okay, so now are we up to the part where we're talking about this? <laughs> I, I was really taken aback. I got whiplash from the speech at the end where the movie takes a bizarre, sudden, hard right turn. Like, the whole movie long, I thought this was a lefty, you know, peacenik kind of a deal. Like, he's coming around, he's being all holier than thou. You petty humans with your squabbles. Where I'm from, we have no need for that. We have no need for money. We have no need for war. We're above it all. We're above it all is the whole point. And yes, I thought the message was going to be let go of your human need for conflict because it's unnecessary on a cosmic scale because peace is the true cause. Something like that, you know, right? That's what I thought this was about. And then it turns out at the end, it's like, no, like... (laughs) For our policemen, we created a race of robots. We are peaceful because we have murder robots. Murder robots will keep us peaceful. In matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over Yes, murder robots over which we have no control. That's why this is a message of peace. (laughs) We have abdicated our authority to judge, jury, and executioner murder robots, and they keep us peaceful. See? There is no problem with this system. It is a perfect system of perfect murder robots. How I learned to stop worrying and love Gort. You know the scene in RoboCop where the robot just kills the guy in the boardroom? I thought of that. Like, that's what he's... Oh, this perfect robotic policeman. Yes. Which will never make any mistake. I kind of feel like I have to give this movie props because this is, you know, the sort of dawn of what we think of as science fiction storytelling and pop culture. And it proposes, what if we could solve all of society's ills with perfect murder robots. And everybody went like, oh, wait, is, it may, is, that, is that a good idea? Maybe that is a good idea. Maybe. And then the whole rest of science fiction has been 
wrestling with the question of what could go wrong with perfect murder robots? It's just so crazy that that is exactly <laughs> the human issue that they were trying to confront. That they were reading, in the, you know, Blaustein was reading the newspaper and Robert Wise, they all say they felt the message was important. They were reading the newspaper about escalation of the arms race and they thought, how can we stop the madness if only there were a threat too horrible to ignore? Now, I read and I believe that the real answer for why they did this is that it was meant to be an allegorical propaganda for the United Nations, which was a sort of newfangled thing going. It was negotiating the incipient Cold War. They wanted to advocate for a centralized authority to which the various squabbling bad actors would submit and let the objective outside authority rule matters so that we don't have to be as petty as to have a Cold War. All right, I, I guess I can see that. I mean, sure, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, it still, like I said, kind of gave me whiplash as I got to that moment. Yes, I was shocked. I thought, wait a minute, this is actually a pro- nuclear uh deterrent you know the message is speak softly and carry a big enough stick to destroy the world and that's how we'll make peace and then i read more and watched it a few more times and let it sink in i think now that no it is just a truly naive movie made by people who yeah. sincerely tried to put across what they thought was a peacenik message i think i am absolutely right that this was such a compelling idea that it necessitated the response in the form of, oh, I don't know, every single other piece of science fiction that came afterwards. I think this is a movie that was made by people for whom there was no contradiction in uh, Jesus from space landing and saying, I don't care about your petty nationalism. I'm not here to talk to any one nation. I'm here to talk to all the people of Earth equally. That's why I parked in front of the Washington Monument and spent the day marveling at Arlington Cemetery and Abraham Lincoln. I have no favorite nations. I just care about humanity. They did, like, no one flinched about having him park on the mall in Washington, D.C. and then say that this was a message of international peace above national concerns. I think it was made by Americans with that level of you know, just naive acceptance of the framework. That seemed international to them. That seemed yeah. high-minded. I think that the feeling, as I read someone's commentary, you know, because I saw the end, and I was like, oh my God, what does this movie actually believe? And someone's essay about it, they said, the movie does seem to be saying this, but the movie feels liberal, and that's sort of <laughs> yes, what matters. Exactly. <laughs> That guy, Sam Jaffe, who plays the, uh, you know, Einstein stand-in scientist, he, he was very shortly after this movie was made was blacklisted for being too lefty. Yeah. I don't think he made many more movies. So this has all been, in the interest of a conversation about the music, to say oh. the only way to make that message anything other than an obvious warmongering message <laughs> is to absolutely put all your eggs into the basket put all your force on the idea that this message is coming from beyond yeah this is not a guy saying it this is something awe-inspiring strange terrifying incomprehensible is saying it if it sounds like a person saying it then that spoils it you know it just reveals the confusion of what's being said but if you can stay in the deep you know psychological depths of 
I don't know where this voice is coming from, but I feel awed by it. I feel a religious awe for this thing. Mm. You know, in religion, God does things that people can't do. And that's actually kind of the <laughs> the danger in religion is if people say, oh, maybe I should do what God did in that story. Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> the ethics, the morals yeah. <laughs> here have to have a really clear line between no nation should dare consider developing a gort. Gort comes from outer space and outer space is different from earth yeah and i think bernard herman whether or not he knew it consciously and i suspect he didn't because what i've read about him is that he was sort of resolutely anti-political and didn't really know how to think or talk about politics he was so much obsessed with the arts and the world of literature and music and drama i don't think he really did a kind of political calculation and decide that this is what the movie needed he just it's his instinct felt it just instinctively knew that what this movie needed to be tolerable was to be transported outside of normalcy and mm. all of the music is doing that transported outside of normalcy yes is right and i want to come back to the fractal mm -hmm. as his way of doing that you know i keep saying about how this music is processed arrived and it sounds like a pattern it sounds like a mechanism or a fabric with repeating elements that keep repeating that you have to understand by attempting to understand the rules of the pattern i have something that it kept putting me in mind of that you're not going to expect i'm trying to expect it but um I'm not going to. No, you're not. So uh, I should just give up. <laughs> you remember that scene in the movie The Hunt for Red October? <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. I don't, I don't know. It. It's actually a really good movie. It's much better than the, uh, the submarine movie that we talked about in our 95 episode Crimson Tide. It's a really good movie. Okay, I should see that. Okay, so in that movie, the conceit is that Sean Connery has got a super special quiet submarine that the other submarines can't hear because it has a special quiet newfangled propulsion technology. And the sonar guy in the American submarine is trying extra hard to listen through what he can hear outside to discern if there's a signal in the noise that he's hearing. There's a scene where he goes and he talks to Scott Glenn, the captain of the submarine. The sonar guy says, I found this strange noise. It's just a whoosh. It's just, is this something? Is this anything? And then he plays it at 10 times speed. Now you can hear, oh, it's a pattern. But you couldn't tell. It just sounded like noise. That's got to be man-made. You couldn't tell until you zoomed out or, or zoomed in. And that is the impression that I kept getting from nearly every cue in this score, is that I'm listening to something kind of at the wrong scale. It's either that... I'm zoomed way in on a piece of cloth or something, you know, one of those misleading microscope images mm -hmm. you see of things, and you're like, what is that? What could be? And then you zoom out, oh, I see, it's a normal object. Or in the other direction, like I'm looking at some sort of gigantic super galactic structure that I have to zoom all the way out to be able to tell if I'm looking at it, you know, in a normal human scope of vision. All of this music is a process that we can only see because he has pushed it through another dimension. It 
it probably makes its own internal sense. Maybe it's beautiful in the seventh dimension. But when it touches into our three dimensions, this is the shadow that it casts. You know what I mean? That, like, we're paying attention to this at the wrong scale. This repetitive pattern, it belies the noise that it's apparently made of, or vice versa, or something. Stop me when I'm something. I'm just trying to, it's not a response that I had, but I like, I like this, you know, it's sort of a response I've had to other things. I understand the principle you're describing. I mean, I think that this music is wonderfully mysterious, and this is called Nocturne. This is for when the kid sneaks out of the boarding house to follow Klaatu to the landing site. Mm -hmm. I think this creates a lovely nighttime sneaking mystery feeling. Well, sure it does. Of course it does. And the fact that it's repeating in fives, which is not sort of a normal meter at which to repeat a pattern, does give it an uncanniness. Like everything in the score, it has an uncanniness. I'm not sure I perceived it as a matter of scale or, you know, zoom level as you're describing. It is sort of spatially disorienting, like you're in a don't know where the edges are, some kind of feeling like that. I like the image of, oh, if only we could zoom out or in enough that it would make sense. Yeah. But I feel like I know that that wouldn't work. It still wouldn't make sense. <laughs> That's why I said fractal before, I guess. It feels like it's just intrinsic that this is not a human thing to express. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is what's being expressed, is that this is on a different scale than human thought. The thing that is being iterated, and then the variations between all the different iterations, neither is quite the right size to look at comfortably. I think that that is an intentional attempt to make things feel alien and cosmic and, you know, to suggest an intelligence beyond humanity. There's just stuff going on you can't grok. Mm -hmm. Or gort. You can't even gort it. Yeah, the patterns here are inhuman alien patterns. Yes. And the instrumentation, I was going to say, everything about this instrumentation that you sketched out before contributes to a special sound. The organs... Which, yeah, maybe a slightly religious association in the distance. I don't know. A lot of the time, to me, they're just there to create a kind of a buzzing or ringing mechanical kind of uncanniness. You know, it's also a keyboard instrument that you can throw down a lot of notes on. If you're not going to have strings or winds, you need some meat in there. But yeah, the organs and pianos and harps, everything is metallic or gleaming. The substance, it's not made out of flesh and blood or earth or, you know, comfortable matter. This score is made out of strange sci-fi stuff. And yes, the theremin. Let's talk about the theremin. The theremin was invented in the 20s by a Russian guy named Leon Instrument. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to now say, his name wasn't exactly theremin, it was like Termyen. And then a particular Anglicization of that has become standard, but I don't think he was called Mr. Theremin. But anyway, yes, Leon Instrument. Oh, his name was Theremin. <laughs> okay. And it's an instrument that you play without touching it. It relies on electromagnetic fields that you sort of interrupt by waving your hands in the air. There's like a steel rod that's sticking straight up, and then there's a steel loop 
on the side of this you know, electric box. One of those elements controls the pitch. You wave your hand farther or closer away from it and it controls the pitch. And the other, you move your hand in the air near it and that controls the volume. So sort of right away, just in the way that you interact with it, it kind of feels like a sci-fi thing. Like playing the theremin is kind of evoked by you know, when you see Klaatu in the cabin of the Flying Saucer and he's waving his hands over these futuristic bits and bobs on his dashboard and things light up when he just waves his hand in front of them. How otherworldly to be able to manipulate things by waving your hand over it without touching. It feels paranormal already. If you can see someone playing it. Yeah. And so he sort of shopped this instrument around in the 20s and 30s and showed it to people and it kind of caught on in high society as a curiosity. Do you know who was, in fact, the first composer to use the theremin in a movie score? I think I know. I think the answer is Dmitry Shostakovich. Is that that's your correct. answer? correct. Yes, that's my answer for a 1930 movie that's called Alone or Russian for Alone. But no. And it's not used in any kind of sci-fi context. It's used for like a snowy windstorm or a windy snowstorm that besets a character. Because the theremin in the 20s and 30s, you know, it certainly looks like someone's conducting a seance to play it, but the associations with the sound were that this was like a new vocal type instrument or a new violinistic instrument. And I used to have a recording of Clara Rockmore, who was a virtuoso of the theremin, and she would play traditional either vocal or violin classical music in legitimate venues and very well with a beautiful singing technique. And this was generally how the instrument was used as a, yes, technological and new and timbrely strange, but otherwise traditional instrument. And it began getting taken up by more and more film composers. Miklos Roja used it to noteworthy effect in Spellbound. Again, though, not quite for sci-fi purposes. He used it to convey, you know, mental disorder Mm -hmm. and strangeness. Inner strangeness. Right. Yeah, dreams, memories. Roger used it in other scores as well. Starting in 1945. That's right. Spellbound is 45. I read that Herman was sort of scooped in terms of using it for a sci-fi, for a flying saucer setting by Ferdi Grofe in 1950 for a totally forgotten sci-fi movie called Rocket Ship XM. I read something that cited that as the first use of it in a sci-fi film. But, you know, the association with the theremin, with a flying saucer, with a cheesy, low-budget flying saucer, really is sealed in this movie, in The Day the Earth Stood Still, because of the force of what Herman did with it. Well, that's definitely the line. I was prepared to do a little bit of cold water on this story, because I, looking into it, it seems like by 1951... The idea that a theremin would be associated with outer space was pretty well established. Bernard Herrmann was not inventing that association. I found there was an album in 1947 called Music Out of the Moon that was a theremin and ensemble. And it was was like Lunar Rhapsody and Moon this and that. And why was it moon music? Because the theremin was in there. This is actually considered sort of the progenitor of space age 
music, whatever you call it, space pop, Les Baxter and Harry Revel. I thought this was kind of fun listening. Definitely sounds like an influence on Captain Kirk. And apparently, Neil Armstrong actually took a copy of this uh, on <laughs> Apollo 11 and played it on their return trip. But then, yes, as you say, in Rocket Ship XM in 1950, and then in The Thing, or The Thing from Another World, the original The Thing, which came out earlier in 1951, with score by Dmitry Tiomkin, which has theremin in it, again, to signify sci-fi weirdness. So I think that, I mean, Bernard Herrmann certainly has used it in an indelible and impressive way here, but I don't think he needs to be credited with having invented anything. He just did a good job of a thing that was being no, done. I, 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 I didn't credit him with inventing it. I said that he cemented the association that had existed beforehand. I didn't mean it to be on your head specifically, but mm, what right, I have right. heard traditionally said, like it's because of the day the earth stood still and coming to this podcast, I thought, well, let's just say that it's not necessarily because of the day you the earth stood still. You found something deeper than I found and <laughs> yes, you get correct. credit for that. Very correct. good. Credit. Thank you. That's all this is about. <laughs> but I, I showed up and said Rocket Ship XM... And and you had in your head that you had found a th- an older thing, so you wanted to make sure that you got to say the thing that really preceded it. But no, I, I wanted I, to play that clip. I wanted to oh, make sure, sure everyone got to hear that. Yeah, I, it was interesting to me digging through the very beginnings of sci-fi as we know it, because obviously science fiction had existed for you know since Jules Verne and whoever you want to go back into the 19th century, Edgar Allan Poe, and then there had been Flash Gordon and things like that. But this moment at the beginning of the 50s is seen reasonably as the beginning of science fiction movies as we think of them now. And digging into that moment and looking at these very earliest examples, it was interesting to me how much was already in place and was sort of just being inherited from what was being done before. And what I was struck by about this score was that it was so pure about being weird. Mm. There's weird stuff in Rocket Ship XM, and there's weird stuff certainly in Tiomkin's music to The Thing from Another World. But it's in the context of sounding like a traditional score. It's not as though an alien wrote the music. It's like a human wrote music that is sometimes about aliens. Yeah, and this is like, not even that an alien wrote the music, that like the bizarre thrumming in the alien underground layer was transcribed and turns out to sound like this when played on Earth. And as sort of just a stimulus to comparison, something to think about, The Day the Earth Stood Still was done on the Lux Radio Theater a few years later, and they got Michael Rennie, but they did not get the Bernard Herrmann music because they would have live music. So you can listen to someone else's score to this script. I must speak to them. It's what I came for. Gort will put out the ramp. Uh, Rudy Schrager, who, you know, was never a first-tier composer, but he had a long career, a professional. And it's perfectly fine, but it's not transcendently other. It's just to score. Dream or not, Bobby saw this Mr. Carpenter go into the spaceship. And then a wave of sheer terror swept over Bobby at last, and he turned and ran wildly away, the way little boys always run in nightmares. 
and it really hurts the script a lot, I feel. So the theremin as used here, something I think Bernard Herrmann is the first to do is have two theremins. <laughs> In fact, I'm not sure anyone has ever done that again. I don't know. But uh, this is definitely the premier two theremin score. What's so striking to me about his use of theremin is when he uses the low range of the theremin because mm-hmm. that's really weird. I kind of feel like I have an understanding of the high theremin range and that's what was originally kind of thought of as being an analog for a high female voice or a high violin, you know, with its wavering vibrato and stuff. But when you do it all the way at its low end, uh, which I don't know (laughs) if that's when your hand is closest or furthest away from it. I have to ask Evan Schletter. Friend of the show mentioned a couple times, Evan Schletter is in fact a modern day master theremin player. I've had the privilege of seeing him do it a few times. That's very cool. It is. You know who's playing the theremin on this? The guy who played theremin on all of Roger's scores and is one of the two theremins here was a guy named Dr. Samuel J. Hoffman, a podiatrist, <laughs> who was the thereminist on almost every major movie with a theremin <laughs> part for 20 years, including Spellbound in the Lost Weekend and Rocket Ship XM. He was just the guy in L.A. that everyone called. Podiatrist by day, thereminist by uh, contract. By other days. I... <laughs> I wonder if him being a podiatrist and not, you know, a full-time professional musician explains Herman's disdain for him. I guess you don't need to reach for any alternative explanations for Herman's prickliness. That's just how he was. But uh, golly, listen to how he talked to him. We have this recording of some studio uh, rehearsals and outtakes, and here he is. uh, I guess there's two theremin players, so maybe he's talking to the other one, but... uh, Here's Herman's adenoidal voice breaking in to complain about what the theremin is doing. Uh, hold on, what happened to the first theremin? Please, watch, Lionel. Don't go ahead. We're not doing linoleum. Once more, Lionel, you've got a very bad <laughs> He says, we're not doing linoleum here? It sounds like it's a great insult to say to anybody. <laughs> well, cut it out. We're not doing linoleum here, but I have no idea what it refers to. I at first didn't, and then I started to piece together a theory, and then listening to the score-themed commentary track that's on the Blu-ray, they mention this and sort of put it in context. I think the idea is, I know this music is all patterns, Uh like one tile after another, but don't just treat it as tiling. You're not just laying tile. You have Hmm. to be musical. You have to care about expression, even though these things repeat. Which is an interesting objection on the part of Bernard Herrmann to say this is not just, we're not doing linoleum, we are playing music. Uh, That's a perfectly valid explanation. I I thought maybe it had something to do with the material itself, some sort of sense of plasticity or cheapness or mundanity. I think it's when he's objecting that he wants there to be a little bit more shaping of each phrase. He doesn't want them to rush, right? All right. I just know I'm going to say that to people now. We're not doing (laughs) linoleum, for crying out loud. Another thing you can hear on these outtakes is that the theremin being an awful instrument to play requires them to keep pulsing the note they're about to play as they're counting down right before the take starts. Quiet. One. Two. Because otherwise it's so risky to just come in cold on a note. There's no frets on a theremin, you know? You don't know where the notes are. It's just midair in front of you. How can you... I was wondering that myself. How can you play the theremin if you don't have perfect pitch? You just have to listen to where your hand is by the note that you hear. But yes, you're right. You have to, like, kind of be testing it out before you come in. Where am I going to put my hand? 
there is something that contributes to the overall effect of weirdness in hearing how unstable those tones are and how sort of human but inhuman they are in their kind of warbling. And it was hard not to think about the score to Scott of the Antarctic that we talked about but a few episodes ago. Hmm which used an eerie soprano, an actual human soprano, and some, like we said, crystalline patterns and some sort of similar techniques and similar harmonic techniques. I mentioned at the time that it sounded like Herman to me. Sure. He's kind of carrying over some of the same expressive intent. And this chord, you know, what are these chords that Herman is using? They are triads, often a tritone apart, which we've talked about in various conversations. You know, the main title kind of has two harmonic ideas in it. There's the first one that goes back and forth between D minor and C half diminished, which we've said all the words for this. It's space, it's the scale of things. But then there's this kind of revelatory spiritual progression that it goes through with four steps. This has in it the augmented fourth suspension that we talked about Herman using again in... uh, In Vertigo. In Vertigo. This time resolving from an A-flat with a D in it to an actual D major chord here by a tritone, which is a just unearthly resolution. And when... Klaatu first comes out of the spaceship, you hear all the elements of that suspension kind of juxtaposed. You hear this high D, and then you hear the A flat chord, and then you hear this deep D in the bass. And there's a sense that it is actually juxtaposing different things. At least that's how it felt to me in the scene when Klaatu comes out. It's subtle because what's about to happen is a hair-triggered, hot-headed soldier is about to shoot him and spoil everything because that's the stupid human way. If the music were too calm and easy and this guy fired off a gun, we'd, I think, scoff and think that's just so ridiculously stupid. If the music were too scary, we wouldn't be able to immediately think, oh, tut-tut, humans. And there's this, I think, really smart juxtaposition in the chord of the purity, the kind of heavenly messenger quality in this high pitch, the D on the Hammond organs, on, I think, the electric violin and vibraphones. And on the theremin. This singing voice from the heavens, but then the chord that goes against it, could be a conflict because of just supernatural things we can't understand, or it could be a conflict because there's danger here, and then that deep, low note is somewhat frightening. On the electric bass and the electric cello and the bass note in the organ, and it feels like as it sort of goes from one element to the next, to the next, It's shifting, the shifting feelings that we're having are all kept alive by this. And I thought that was sort of going on through all of these, as you said, mathematical processes that he sets at work in the score. They kind of show conflicting takes or conflicting elements of a situation grinding against each other. 
And that's another way that I get compared in my mind to the uh, Scott of the Antarctic score where we talked about how these strong and disorienting triad to triad moves in the harmonies make you feel the struggle of man against the elements. And here there is some kind of struggle implicit. Things are fighting with each other, but they're like a philosophical fight. It's like a fight in your mind. Can you, can you reconcile these things? So as before with the other Bernard Herrmann scores that we've talked about, we were able to look at the written notated score manuscript, which again is in Bernard Herrmann's own personal handwriting. He orchestrated everything himself. Because we were able to see the score, though, it clues you in to a strange technique that I wanted to talk about for a moment that he does a bunch of times through the score. Noteworthy example, the first time it happens is when Gort, the big murder robot, he opens the visor of his foreboding helmet and it lights up inside a cyclopean light and he zaps the guns from out of the army guy's hands and the guns like glow and disappear and then he zaps the tank and the artillery gun because that's his apparently peaceful mission is to destroy anything that could provide aggression. Except for himself. Okay, so there is a sting, there is a musical acknowledgement for these laser beams coming out of his visor. But it is a separate recording than the rest of the music that is playing over. This is the music that's called the visor that is the bed, that is the pattern that is happening during the scene. And like everything else, it has rules. It goes, and then something else goes, and then it goes, and then then it's going to repeat and repeat and repeat, iterate, iterate. And that keeps going. But if you listen, you can hear that these big dissonant stings that are layered on top of them, you can hear that the underlying pattern is still going. We actually have these different elements separated. notated separately on a separate page with slightly different instrumentation and with an instruction to, it says here, record wild and dub in backwards. I don't think it is backwards in the ultimate mix, do you? No, because you would hear the symbols going backwards, but it is recorded wild, which means, you know, out of context and just as a one piece of a thing that's going to be added to a different continuity. So yeah, here it is together. And you can hear the existing continuity continue. And it's a very dissonant effect. And why did he do that, Andy? Why did he do that? Because it's almost beyond the music. It's a special effect. It's a sound effect, sort of. I see it as like so many things in this score that I admire. A corrective to the limitations of the film. (laughs) This laser beam effect was not scary enough. 
It was not shocking enough. It's sort of slow. It's like a steady build. The things that he's disappearing glow, and then the glow goes down, and then they're not there anymore. It needed to be horrifying, and you needed to think about the unthinkable power necessary to do such a thing. So that power needed to be rendered into sound, and Herman has done that. Sure, but why didn't he write the sting into the score? Why did he have one piece of continuous pattern going that he was then going to superimpose the sting on top of, sort of without care or bother about how it fit on top of the pre-existing music? It's like a collage. It's like, you know, a paper doll. I cut out the hat and then stick it on top. Are you asking this rhetorically? Because I think you have answered this question elsewhere in this conversation. Oh, that sounds good. What did I say? I think it's because, as you said, this is about these alien patterns. The music is not about what is happening to humans and how they feel about it. In fact, to do that would be a betrayal of the overall dramatic effect of this score, which is to keep us aware of Alien Other the whole time. And so if he integrated a shock effect into the underscore, it would suggest that the essential thing happening was the fact of being shocked. Right. That's not the essential. The essentials here are a universe that doesn't care enough about humans to stop when they're shocked. But the shock also needed to be beefed up. So two things are happening on two different strata. I think that's why. Yeah, I think that's why too. And yes, and thank you for attributing it to you because you did in fact say those things earlier. Yeah, (laughs) thank you for paying off my rhetorical question. I still do think that there is a certain amount of an element of convenience to it. You know, it was sort of a quick and dirty way that you might get things done for live scoring things. That, okay, when this thing happens, here's, you know, the one sheet of music you need to know about. Play that and then go back to doing the other thing so that, you know, it saves you time to be able to do it wild and then stuck on top. But yes, I think both things are true. That above that, there's a principled reason that, yes, this mechanistic process, this iterative pattern, it's going to go. And it doesn't matter where in that pattern the puny human window of attention sting needs to fall. I also think he was interested in the potential of layering audio tracks, clearly in this score, Mm -hmm. in its own right. He does it a lot. He does it in several places, like that prelude, which is basically just the one chord and then the descending theremins that we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's very intricately written out as four different layers. He wants two of them to be backwards and two of them to be forwards. I don't think that ultimately ended up happening, but he scored one chord for pianos and chimes and cymbal and another chord for just vibraphones and another chord. Like he wanted these things to kind of be coming from different dimensions and all intersecting in a spliced together unity. And then the showpiece at the center of the movie, the day the earth stood still. The cue for the earth standing still. It's a very intricately worked out collage effect that I think is quite effective. What did you think of the uh, technique there? I was a little skeptical of it here, I'll admit. This is a cue called the magnetic pull for some reason. In a couple of pages of the score, there's what the you know, body of the orchestra is doing. Theremin pattern D. And the brass with the answering part of the pattern. And then the tube is below it and 
big organ sounds. And then on the next page, you turn to the next page of the score, and here's the wild chords that are labeled with the cities that they're going to accompany the shots. Oh, look, it's happening in Washington. It's happening in Times Square. It's happening in Paris. Did you notice that it shows all these places around the world and it's daylight in all of them? Anyway. Uh-huh. That's just yet another effect of the magnetic pole. Oh, interesting. I think it wound up mostly feeling muddy to me. It definitely feels muddy. I mean, he's overlapping. First of all, what are these chords? They're all polytonal blends of multiple minor triads for maximum dissonance. Yeah. You know, a minor triad and then the minor triad a ninth away or like a minor second away juxtaposed. So you get these two incompatible chords. Right, and that's just the sting. That's the wild sting is this already intrinsically very dissonant thing. And then that's just going to get plopped on top of whatever else the orchestra is doing at that moment. Right, and what is the thing the orchestra is doing at that moment? Playing chords like that, sliding into adjacent chords also like that. Yeah. So there's just triad on top of triad, moving to triad. To It's just kind of kaleidoscope effect. Like everything is splintered. Everything is sliding past everything else. there which is just on the edge of having any real musical content like i was saying there are many things in the music that are correctives to the shortcomings of the film the question of well how is he doing this what is the science fiction here what exactly is going on as you said you don't know what the magnetic pull means the music is creating the special effect Mm. by a visceral pulling of forces Something about normalcy, about the air around you, about just physical forces has been messed with. And things that should be in alignment are out of alignment. And you can kind of feel in the physics of this world, you can feel like the horizontal, what what do you call it when the the picture slides on a television, you know? Uh, Uh, The weft and the warp? No, that's that's weaving. Like Hugo weaving? (laughs) Yeah, like in The Matrix, exactly. Oh, okay, like in The Matrix. That's what I was getting at, yeah. That things are, something is pulling. You can't, like, focus your eye on it. Oh, it's sliding out of place. And that's why this is happening. And I think that it makes the effect of the scene so much stronger to have this illustration in sound of what's going on. It does not function as expressive music. No, it doesn't. And if what you're saying is we're missing expressive music because we need more expression in this movie, I do hear that. And maybe that's a critique of the score as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I think we've very well covered the reasoning behind doing it this way. You put it very well to to make it clear that this possibly problematic authoritarian force is coming from outside of the normal scope of human affairs. It's coming from something incomprehensible. And that is important, and that, you're right, is why the movie is memorable above, you know, any of the rest of the schlocky flying saucer movies that were made during this period. But I still I still missed a little bit of the human element of what it feels like to experience this. 
And like, not that this is the most important thing, but I think it's symptomatic, is that it, you know, he misses a joke. Everything in the world is turned off, and there's no power to anything. You can't use the phone, you can't start your car, nothing. And then there's this, you know, very mildly cute exchange in the, the jewelry store. In yeah. the jewelry store, where the guy says, "Well, what's wrong with the phone? The phones don't work. Well, why don't you call you the phone call the company? You oh, can't because Mr. the phones Baker, don't work. But the phone doesn't work either. Well, call the phone company. But the phone doesn't work. Again, the version of this movie, the 2008 version of this movie, which I haven't seen and I'm not going to see, so is it a if it has a joke... But you're forcing me to get clips from it for the editing, so I will probably end up watching this. Calling it Gort, Genetically Organized Robotic Technology. <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't get any clips because it's a, I want my point to stand... Uh, whether or not it's true. Whether okay. or not it's true, yeah. A modern movie is going to leave a hole for the joke or something. It's going to dial things down. You know, if you're putting this on the screen, then make a beat for it. Make it worth doing. And the music just churning through. I tried, Mr. Bleeker, but the phone doesn't work either. Very distinctly conveys. But the phone doesn't work. I don't care. Doesn't matter. Not important. Not interested. Not interested in your puny human joke. I have bigger ideas. And I think the idea of the score being not interested in the puny goings-on of the screenplay is not a concept that would fly today. Yeah, but thank goodness, right? That's why this movie survived for as long as it did as a vital movie, because it exposed people to awe and, you know, the otherworldly. It's essentially... The music is sci-fi distilled to just the experiential color of sci-fi. And by doing that, it said, all this silly schlocky stuff that's happening, all of this preachy, questionable, you know, stagey stuff that's actually happening on screen, this is the actual color of that. Yeah. Filter it through this mindset. And that, you know, any contribution to the stagey stuff would have diminished the movie. I think that these right. are the right choices. You're right. I, I can't disagree with that. It is remarkable and it's distinctive and it's visionary and fascinating. And I love it for all of those reasons. I just want to register that I, at the same time, I missed a little bit of humanity. So let's talk about what I shelved much earlier. Oh. Why do we hear Noble Trumpet, the motif from the Arlington Cemetery cue, one last time, after not having heard it since then, we hear it at the moment of farewell as Klaatu says, think about what I've said, goodbye, and turns and goes back into the spaceship. What does it mean? I think it's meant to equate his speech that he gives his scolding ultimatum, I think it's meant to draw a comparison between that and, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation that uh, <laughs> that we see them admiring in the Lincoln Memorial earlier. And Klaatu looks at it and says, those are great words. He must have been a great man. I think the idea was for there to be the music of great words in the air Got to drive home the import of the warning. That's probably right. Thank you. I wasn't sure if the fact that that was the only earthly music in the score recurring here at the end. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like the sound of mankind looking back at him. 
because it sort of plays the moment when Patricia Neal, who I guess there was some kind of crypto-romantic uh, relationship developed here. I, I, like, why is she even in the movie? Obviously, so that they can have a woman on the poster. But are we supposed to understand that she kind of communed with the wisdom and will carry it forward or something? I think there was supposed to be an element of romance between the two of them that wasn't quite uh, fleshed out in the production. But I think that was in the maybe in the original screenplay. I think I read. Well, the moment that remains here is that after he is resurrected, they have a reunion where Herman takes this eerie theremin duet effect that we've heard earlier and just softens it harmonically. Yeah. And puts the electric violin above it. And I gives like it, that a lot. Yeah. A little kind of aura of human sentiment has just sort of wafted into it. And that did feel like a good payoff to some kind of developing emotional situation, but that is the payoff. It goes no further than that. Well, that's right. It goes no further. It's a nice moment when the electric violin enters. It enters on him opening his eyes. It feels like an entrance, and it feels like it's marking a moment in the drama, and it is plaintive and lovely and, yes, kind of smooths out some of the repetitive stuff that we had heard before. But then I sort of, I did note that, well, from there, where does it go? It, yeah, it just sort of derives out the rest of the pattern that would necessarily follow. Hello. And that is, I think, maybe a good microcosm for the, just the little bit more attention to the actual human experiences on the screen that I felt was a little bit missing. I felt like... Just having this pattern spin itself out and kind of pattern itself away sort of lost the thread of the lovely awakening moment. How long? You mean how long will I live? That no one can tell. It kind of petered out, I think, a little differently than I would have liked. On the score-focused commentary track, Nick Redman album producer of many soundtrack albums, repeats what he says is a a well-known witticism about Herman, but that I actually hadn't heard before. I'm not sure who originated this, that all of Benny Herman's music is Jeepers Creepers, but he never gets to where'd you get those peepers. (laughs) Because, you know, Herman's fallback in every situation is a descending step. Yeah. And you can make a joke about it, but I think that as a molecule of kind of musical motion, which is what it is, it's like something has moved only a little bit in this moment. And in this moment, something has moved, but only a little bit, one step. It seems right so many times. So yes, you're right. At the end there, instead of playing a love theme, Instead of playing, and so we know, no, we don't know anything. Things just continue to move, but the steps have softened. And there's sort of an echo of the very eerie cue earlier when Klaatu sort of wakes Gort back up by shining a flashlight at him, which is just a duet for theremins, I think, right? I think there's some timpani in there too. Oh yeah, there's some low notes, but they're just... That's one of the most eerie sort of horror movie moments in the movie for me. It's like these two theremins gliding against each other are like some 
horrible ghosts. And then almost the same effect is happening here at the end, but it's not ghosts, it's people. And even the spaceman is somewhat of a person at this point. I mean, you can always find a motivation, you can always find a conviction and creativity and force of personality in Herman's music. And therefore you can also always find a dramatic something, you know, a direction. He gives you a molecule and then a way that it can move and change. And so it posits to you, there is matter and there is a force acting upon the matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's an impetus. So figure out what that impetus is. It must be something. There is some explanation. There is a reason behind it because there is a force acting on matter. And there is always something dramatically valid to say about, oh yes, that's the force of this, or that's the nature of this matter, or the nature of, you know, gravity. Gravity turns out to really be the shape of space. You know, that's all sort of being given to you by the way that he takes a thing and he changes it a little bit, and that makes you think, yes, there is energy, there is reality. And that fundamentalness, how fundamental those forces are, is, yeah. I think, why he gave so much attention to instrumentation, because a big part of his work is characterizing the matter on which these forces are working. The forces are actually very much universal. What changes movie to movie and scene to scene is this aesthetic fabric of reality. Yeah, this movie just has enticing, interesting, intriguing sound mm -hmm. in it throughout. John, let's just get this out of the way. Uh -huh. What do you think Klaatu Barada Nikto means? <laughs> Well, he's, um, first part is, uh, is his name, right? His name is Klaatu. Yeah. Right? This is the, uh, in case you haven't seen the movie, which you probably haven't, this is the special code word that he tells Patricia Neal in the end to stop Gort from wreaking his terrible vengeance upon everybody. This is mm -hmm. the, uh, There's no limit to what he might do. That's right. Unless you say these special words to him to make him stop. And yes, there are three words. He makes her repeat them. Klaatu Barada Nikto. I, I read that Patricia Neal had a terribly hard time keeping a straight face while they were filming her saying them. She thought it was just so much hogwash and so silly. Mm -hmm. It is rather silly. It's rather silly. But let's, you're right, let's break it down. All right, Klaatu, that's the guy's name, right? So he's, it's a sentence that Klaatu is the subject, and then burrata is a special treatment of mozzarella cheese. Okay, burrata. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Nikto I'm not sure about. Probably something about nicotine because of how much smoking the doctors are doing in 1951. So Klaatu prefers mozzarella to smoking. That's what I get. Okay. I bring it up because yeah. on, you know, looking, reading online about Klaatu Barada Nikto, which, trust me, I already knew that phrase. Yeah. That's one of those phrases that you're told that there's a phrase you should know. You know yet. about that. And... Online, people basically say, oh, it's one of, it's so mysterious because no one knows what it means. But it seems obvious what it means in the movie. It means Klaatu, say, relax, right? <laughs> it means Klaatu and then Barada is the verb, delivers this message to you, and then Nikto is the command. And this is confirmed by Herman's cue for that moment. It's not called Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. It's called Nikto. 
he understood that Klaatu Parada is just Klaatu says, comma, quote, Nikto. Nikto is the command. And, you know, I think it means like, don't, <laughs> don't just stay calm. Don't, uh, don't blow anything up. And that seemed so clear to me when I watched it. I thought, now I know what it means. And then I went online and I see all these people saying, no one knows what it means. So I just wanted to check with you. Um, it's not really such a mystery, is it? Or do you think that I've oversimplified something that is actually profoundly complicated? No, I think you're right. I think it's both very simple and profoundly complicated. And uh, I think the best way to celebrate and encompass that would be to make up t-shirts that say, Klaatu say relax. Yeah, that's that's what I was referring to, yeah. Yeah, and uh, maybe we can make up those t-shirts and sell them on our merch site. Oh, I see. You're just, you <laughs> You have a scheme. Uh, for me, it was just a witticism, but for you, it's a money-making scheme. Well, John, Barenga, let's <laughs> see what the next movie is. Okay, all right. I, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun on our closing matter, yes. Okay, let's go somewhere else. Yeah. Yabutari Axel Bugatti Oberengi Degas. Thank you. Finally, finally, somebody had the courage to say that. Andy, I believe that you have the bucket for this time. Oh, do I? All right. Oh, yes. Frightening. All right, I don't mind saying, John, yes. to the listeners, there is an 800-pound gorilla in the <laughs> in the lottery machine this time. We know this because our wonderful patrons have voted on what goes into the bucket, and their votes are represented in how many lottery balls as it were, represent each of the possible picks. Right. So there is a heavy favorite in there, but that is no assurance. No, it's not. So let's see what comes out. This is the cockamamie system that we've come up with, and uh, we invite you to participate. All right. I am okay. selecting a ball. I'm reaching into the tumult. Oh, no, the <laughs> the visor is opening. Oh, no, somebody's playing a whole extra concert of instruments on top of the music that's already happening. All right, I have pulled out yes? a number. Okay. And it says that oh the next score yes. that we will discuss will be Johnny Greenwood's score to 2007's There Will Be Blood. Wow, okay. All right. That is actually what happened. Hey, that's... Uh, that was not the 800-pound gorilla that was in the bucket. Sometimes... It just goes to show. It just goes to show that this really is random. No one knew that's what was going to happen, but that is what happened. But people did vote for it and express their opinion that it's worth talking about. And hey, you know what? I agree with them. I think it is worth talking about. I definitely agree. And I will tell you, I did see this movie when it first came out. And Me too. very impressed with the score and the movie and everything about it. Yes. But I haven't gone back to it since then. I haven't dug in and gotten to know it. So now's the time, and I welcome the assignment. I do too. So that'll be fun. I think it will be fun. I think it'll be fun to jump all the way back into a movie, you know, from recent memory. Mm-hmm. More recent memory anyway. Seems like the right thing to do. All right. Thanks, Bucket. Thanks, voters on Patreon. Yes. If you'd like to join them, we would love to have you. Come check out our Patreon where there's bonus content and polls like this. Yes, bonus content about some movies that you didn't hear about on our main feed. You can hear some extra episodes there on the Patreon inner circle. And if you'd like to uh, communicate with us in a different manner, uh, you're welcome to email us, please, at scoresettlers at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We love it when people leave reviews. And that pretty much covers it, right? That's it. That's it. Stupid merch that Andy hates. <laughs> no, we have some cool designs by cool graphic designer that are interesting that you probably still don't want. But they are cool designs. They are. Yeah. So uh, look up our store on Redbubble. All right. It's another one down. I'll see you next time and we'll find out what 
there will be. What do you think it'll be? Uh, oil, exclamation point, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.